Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's guest is philosopher Luce Delier, presenting her paper, Necropolitics, the Death Drive, and the Necessity of Evil. The title of my talk is Necropolitics, Death Drive, and the Necessity of Evil. And that sounds fancy. Um, <laughs> but we might wonder, what is the relation between necropolitics, death drive, and the necessity of evil, if we have at all an idea what ne necropolitics, death drive, and or the possibility necessity of evil might or might not mean or entail. And uh, I think my, so the, the, the basic hypothesis that the email contact that we had started from was that I have the impression, or I added the impression, that there is a certain kind of um, um, ethical bedrock assumption in a lot of uh, brands of uh, leftist and left liberal or like you know, every, everybody of you who would deny that they uh, belong to this, uh, to this concept belongs probably from the conservative perspective to this uh, concept. Um, so there's like, in, in a lot of like uh, practitioners that I know <clears throat> um, that are practicing psychoanalysis, uh, art, or uh, occultist practices, there's a certain uh, ethical um, um, presupposition, I would think, or like feeling or hope or sympathy um, towards something like if everything can like flourish on itself, its own potential or something like that, um, everything would be fine or maybe at least like significantly better. And there's like a big problem about the world, capital T, copyright, um, that makes this impossible for some, for some people in some ways. And that really fucks us up, and that's why we need like the anarchist revolution, or this and this kind of practice, or this and this kind of treatment, which is going to make us uh, flourish in a certain kind of way. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to it. Um, but I also think that um, I also think that there, that there, there might be a significant uh, theoretical problem, maybe a sort of metaphysical problem, you know way of saying metaphysical that I have not yet cashed out um, for myself. But I'm going to float it here. Um, and I'm not going to contextualize this. Um, that I want to develop in this talk, right? So what I'm going to develop are uh, three cases, so to speak, um, of uh, of um, constitutive problems for the idea that flourishing in itself is a good thing. That's the basis, basic idea. Okay. And these three cases are necropolitics, death drive, and the necessity of evil. And um, necropolitics is this problem in the field of politics. 
death drive is this problem in the um, case of the psyche. And the necessity of evil is this problem in the field of ethics. So I'm going to like, you know, pin one figure in three different fields. Um, in order to make it palpable what the technical problem, so to speak, is going to be. And I'm going to do it the, like the opposite direction from the, from the title. So I'm going to start with the necessity of evil. And when I say the necessity of evil, I'm really talking about, what, uh, about a, specific like, a specific usage of the necessity of evil in the later philosophy of Immanuel Kant. So it, must, it should be understood that I'm not talking here about the kind of evil that Christianity or any other kind of like stupid belief system that may or may not have come about more or less arbitrarily um, sets up, okay? I'm not interested in the other is evil, okay? So we, so we might or might not be convinced of, I'm actually pretty convinced of that, like, you know, when Christianity talks of evil, there might be a basis in what I'm talking about here, but most of it is going to be, look, we, want to, we really want to colonial, colonialize and imperialize these people, and we really need an imperial, um, an ethical background for this endeavor, and that's why practices of uh, 16th century witches are evil. The end. Okay, and that's not what I'm talking about. Um, because I think this is actually not evil, this is just, this is just stupid power politics. It's, yeah, okay. There's no argument to be made here, except, look, this is epistemic violence. The end. Okay. Um, Immanuel Kant comes about <clears throat> and uh, tries to write a, a metaphysically um, justified ethics. Okay, so Immanuel Kant in 1783 published this book, which you might have heard of, have heard of, uh, the Critique of Pure Reason. And in this book, he tries to found, um, to, to, to build a foundation of any further uh, philosophical study. In, the, um, um, in, in, in an inquiry of the condition of possibility of knowledge as such. Okay, and I'm not gonna rehearse this here. Let's just imagine that we had such a thing as a distinction between these things are knowable and these things are not knowable. Okay? Um, okay, and then he comes up and says, Look, now we have this like knowability, non-knowability thing, and now we might want to know what we should or should not do with it. And the question of the of the translation of thinking to action is the question of ethics, right? Um, so, what is it that I should or should not do? Should I help the old woman over the, over the street? Probably. <clears throat> Should I invest in, uh, in arms deals? Maybe not. But the question is why, right? And there's a, there's a reasoning to that. Okay. Immanuel Kant comes up and says, look, if we want a metaphysically, so the idea of a metaphysically propped up kind of ethics is a kind of ethics which is gonna, gonna function universally. That's the idea of a science 
of ethics, right? If science in this period of time, 18th century, means universal knowledge, then the universal science of ethics is going to be the universal ethics. How are we going to get a universal ethics? Well, we're going to make an ethics that counts for everybody. How do we make an ethics that counts for everybody? We're going to make it on the basis of something that everybody has to use anyway in order to come up with an ethical statement whatsoever in the first place. To Kant, what is this? It is freedom. Now, Kant is not talking about freedom about the <clears throat> about the, um, as the possibility to pick and choose. Do I want to buy the iPhone 5 now, or do you want, you know, or because it's very cheap, or do I wait, want to wait for the iPhone 17, because then I have, like, get, got all my money together, you know, do I want to eat uh, veal for lunch, or do I want to eat grapes for lunch, uh, or should I, etc., etc. Why is this not the kind of freedom that Kant is talking about? Because Kant is talking about a kind of freedom that counts for everybody all the time, and whether or not you happen to have the particular desire for grapes now or not tomorrow is totally up to arbitrary uh, influences of your particular body, your particular upbringing, your particular taste, etc., etc. So you're not going to have a big chance of like making a universal ethics out of the desire or non-desire for grapes or veal. And that's a problem. So what kind of freedom are we going to use? Well, in the Critique of Pure Reason, Kant comes up with this marvelous idea of a necessary illusion of freedom, right? Um, I'm going to do this like very quickly because I think when I read it first, I, was, I burst out in, in laughter when I, when I understood it because I think it's a really, it's a really funny idea. So um, to Kant, the idea of freedom and the idea of the beginning of the world is the same idea. Why is that? Because it's the idea of a spontaneous um, happening that is not predetermined by anything else. And whether you can do this by eating your pen or whether the world can do this by kicking off in the first place is the same problem, right? The problem is, is there something which has nothing preceding it? Okay, that's the problem. <clears throat> How does Kant solve this problem? He says, look, we have two faculties. We have more faculties, but let's say we have two faculties. The one is uh, understanding, the other one is reason. The understanding consists of a, of a number, of a table, I'm not going to bore you with this, of categories that we need in order to approach the world. And one of these categories is causality. So Kant's thesis is, look, causality is not in the world. This doesn't happen because there's like a causality thing in the world, but it's in your mind. Okay? It's hardwired, causality. Okay. Now, you have the power of reason, and reason is the capacity to, uh, to totalize. Okay? So, I can do this, and you can use your reason and, and ask, okay, why does it make this sound? Well, it makes the sound because the glasses fell on the floor, and I have thrown the glasses, and then there's like all this like, other stuff around it. Why have I thrown the glasses? Well, I wanted to make a point. Why wanna make, do I want to make a point? I want to explain Kant, etc., etc. So you can, you can go through all this chain of, of, of causality, right? And that's your reason, okay? You're going to totalize um, restrictedly on, on, on causality, okay? Why did I even come here? Ah, yeah, I had the idea of this being a fun thing. Why did I have the idea? I had other uh, things that like, brought me to this idea, et cetera, et cetera. This other, okay. Now, um, if you, <clears throat> you, you can make this chain forever. 
and then you will get a serious problem at the beginning, and that's the problem, right? Okay, now, um, Kant's idea is, look, if reason applies to the um, category of um, causality itself, it will generate the idea of a first cause, right? So it's, so it's like one category incestuously applying to another part of the mind. And in the critique of reason, he will say a lot of like why this is problematic, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, the idea is that, <clears throat> that um, by applying reason to the category of uh, causality, the mind generates the idea of freedom. And believe it or not, you can act on ideas. <laughs> you can like make an idea the cause for your action. Now, this idea doesn't have to be true in order to be the cause of your action. You can like happen to believe very strange and stupid things and still act on them, right? So now you can act on freedom, the idea of freedom. So the idea of freedom has no, um, has no um, basis in um, physical reality. So when you're acting on the idea of freedom, whether or not you're really free at this point, you're going to act upon something which doesn't have a cause in the physical sense, right? So Kant's idea is you have, the, you have the idea of freedom that is generated by the mind on itself, and that's going to make you act free in the sense that you have no preceding um, um, physical determination. So everybody has to act on freedom, on the idea of freedom, in order to act ethically anyway. So what, do, what are we going to do in order to like make up a universal ethics? We're going to take the idea of freedom. Okay. What are we going to do? We're going to universalize the idea of freedom <clears throat> over against every kind of veal or grape or like whatever thing that you might or not want to eat or do or not. Okay. So then, of course. Um, the idea is that the that this idea of freedom is universal, as we have just shown, right? It's for you and you and you and you and you and your mother and your ancestors, etc., etc., because it's in the human mind. Okay, so the idea then is we're going to have a universal science of freedom or like of ethics if we say that every single one of your actions should submit to the general agreeability of all free beings, right? This is what we call the universality test, right? If every single person in every single moment could do the same thing on their free um, decision, then we have an ethical act. Okay. Um, so freedom to Kant is really the submission under a very restrictive law. <laughs> That's when you're free. Okay? Dig it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> now, of course, everybody's estranged by that, right? And everybody's like, why would I submit to this like, super restrictive law? I can never lie, even to the fascist government. I cannot lie because lying is bad. <clears throat> that seems weird. Um, and people don't want to do it. And it's a real problem. People don't want to do it. People don't want to be free. Everybody could be free all the time. But they don't want to do it. Why don't they, do they not want to do it? And Kant, of course, is not stupid, right? He realizes this problem. And he speaks about it in his, um, in his uh, later writings and specifically in his writings on religion, 
and I'm not going to comment on why is this in religion, but the problem in religion is, look, we are free, and the basis of our, of our ethics is freedom. You can always decide for every, anything whatsoever. That also means that you can always decide against freedom. Right? The basis of our, of our, um, of our investigation was that, the, that every ethical act has to sit on the basis of the idea of freedom. But the idea of freedom can decide against itself. Right? You can decide against the universal law, as probably every single one of you does every, every time. Nobody's submitting to the universal law. And this is exactly what Kant calls evil. Okay? The possibility, the necessary possibility, my deconstructive reformulation of this, and then he tries to like, capture it with like, anthropology and religion and all of these kinds of things. But if we just stick here for a moment, we have a necessary possibility of deciding against the good, because of course, the universal ethical law of like always acting and always submitting to the universal freedom is the good. The necessary possibility of, of acting against the good is the, necessity, the necessary possibility of evil, right? So in the Kantian framework, um, the very foundation of goodness is itself the source of evil, right? So the very idea of freedom generates and tears down good at the same moment, right? So what we are having here is a, is a figure of self-deconstitution, D-slash-constitution, okay? Um, now that was very long. I'm going to make these, the others a little bit shorter. Um, but, but note that, that, that the friction here is, is substantial. You know, it's not coming from the outside, you know, and then we always have these longings, you know, we always want to eat grapes, you know, there's, there's the no, new iPhone 25, and it's really like built into my genetic code that I need to eat the iPhone 5. That's not the thing here, you know, it's a conceptual problem in the setup. <clears throat> okay, and, and remember, just remember that... Um, that from this ethics, Kant makes uh, the, his writings on the eternal, uh, eternal peace, and that is the foundation of the United Nations. Just floating. <clears throat> okay, self-destruction, self auto-annihilation, uh, auto-deconstitution. -de okay, that's, that's the thing that I'm now going to track through, um, through, a little, through, through two other, other things. Um, Let's maybe jump to, jump to Freud, okay? So Freud in, uh, in Beyond the Pleasure Principle is, is addressing the question of death drive. Okay, and my hypothesis is that there's a version of reading death drive which is exactly the same position as evil and Kant. Okay, it's this self-undoing. And I'm now, I, I now just briefly wanna, wanna track that. And then maybe we can talk about necropolitics and the whatever. Um, okay. So, we start with the pleasure principle. It's very interesting how, how Freud asserts in the very first sentence of uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, the universal, and that's important, the universal um, applicability of the pleasure principle. Ordinarily, you know, we think very easily that everything submits to the pleasure principle. Why, why can you submit everything to the pleasure principle? Well, because we can, we can make this distinction, this is me wrapping this up, right? We can make this distinction between uh, pleasure and unpleasure, lust and unlust, but if we dig very hard, we see that mostly when people experience displeasure, they really experience pleasure 
of a kind of their identity which they suppressed, right? Um, so, um, so I mean, classical example, right? Whenever you don't do not send the email, you probably really don't want to send the email, right? So something inside of you is really is really pleasured and really tripped up. We're like, yeah, I didn't send the email. Fuck off, you bastard. You will not get my information. But of course, you know, the, the, the eye has to come down on it hard and say, no, no, we need to like re, remodel this. Okay, so pleasure, displeasure is really just a kind of pleasure. So you can, so you can <clears throat> come up with a lot of, lot of examples like that. And then, of course, you can, you know, you have pleasure principle and you have the reality principle. Reality principle says, Maybe it's going to be good later, right? <laughs> maybe don't eat the iPhone now. Maybe don't. Maybe eat it later. Maybe later is better. Okay. Um, and but but then a lot of weird things are happening. And um, and two of these things are one: First World War is happening, and he's like getting a lot of people who are like super traumatized and like are shivering all the time. <clears throat> and that seems very weird because also they're dreaming. Uh, they're dreaming of very, very bad things all the time, being shot and like bomb explosions and stuff like that. And if you would have only pleasure principle, you would, you would wonder, why would the pleasure principle show me all these images? It's not pleasurable at all. <clears throat> and the other thing that he's not writing about, but, um, but Derrida, for example, is like making a big deal out of it in his uh, essay on um, Beyond the Pleasure Principle in uh, the postcards, is that one of his grandchildren dies, actually his, first, his famous grandchild dies in 1919, I think. <clears throat> so he's like, in a, when he's writing this shit, he's in a profound moment of despair and sorrow and melancholia and suffering. <clears throat> and that's going to be very interesting uh, in, in a moment. Okay, so now um, it's very interesting to see how in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he's always like making up these like explanations. He's coming up with like a case, like, oh my God, veterans. And then he's going to say, oh my god, pleasure principle doesn't work. And then he's going to say, oh, but maybe we can make it work if we tweak it like this and, and this, and then this is going to happen, and then it, it might work, but it might as well not work, and I'm not so sure. And then he's coming up with like, new ideas, and then he's coming up with like, a weird speculative model on uh, the phylogenesis of, uh, of uh, biological um, things in the first place. Um, and, uh, and there he's going to say, uh, first, uh, first interpretation of like how 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 this might come about. Um, there's a um, basically basically the eye is like a it's like a defense mechanism, and when it's like shattered really hard, it has to put it has to cathect is the psychoanalytic term right? It's a, the translation of the Um Okay, um, it has to cathect this uh, this wound in order to defend against its destruction. Which is, which, and, and he, he, he comes to that by saying, look, it's very interesting that mechanical trauma, like bomb explosion, train accident, um, that uh, mechanical uh, trauma actually leads to repet repetition compulsion. Um, so you remember, like, people coming out of the war? Um, mostly suffer from this kind of like mechanical trauma. So there's, there's this cathexis thing that makes you repeat in order to supersede, in order to integrate and supersede. 
you repeat, you repeat the whole for da thing, which I have, don't have time to comment on right now. No, just six minutes. What? You just said six minutes. Yeah, ah, left. That's okay. <laughs> Isn't it? I thought we were much worse in time. No. Okay, and the other um, interpretation that I want to that I want to float um, so if you so we have pleasure principle um, and we have uh, the weird um, inside that there are things like repetition compulsion, that do not necessarily fit into the pleasure principle. Now, one of the things that Freud um, 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 remarks all the time, and everybody who's writing about that remarks all the time, is that it seems very hard to uh, distinguish the two, actually. The moment that you have like expressed the first, the second is going to come about, and the other way around, right? Um, now, think of Kant's uh, categorical imperative for a second, right? Um, the, the moment you submit to the universal law, you still have the ability to like, get out of the universal law because it's based on freedom, right? The moment that you uh, have like, acted very evil because you have like, I don't know, whatever is going on in your head right now. Um, <laughs> um, you will always have the possibility to submit into the universal law again, right? So the, so the distinction is never, is never clear. You're never really in the one and really in the, in the other. Um, so what I want to suggest is that um, one of the reasons for death drive to like be so, what do you say, um, elusive, is that it's really, and I think you mentioned this as well, or like, I, I heard, like when you said that um, there's a hole in truth, or like the tr that truth is a hole. Um, I was thinking actually of that, uh, of, of, of this point that I would like to make, because you might think that um, there's, there's, there's an effect of the pleasure principle on itself that generates a certain kind of, uh, of death drive, of repetition, of, um, of uh, non-stability. Because remember, very early on in the uh, in the um, in the Beyond the Pleasure Principle uh, um, article, Freud actually defines uh, pleasure. You might not imagine it, but he, he's doing it. He's saying um, he's quoting Fechner, saying there's this there's this stability um, ratio, right? Like uh, things, the psyche tends to stabilize itself. And the relative ratio of, uh, of stability, it doesn't have to be like stiff, right? But it should be in a certain margin. And if uh, everything is like super um, dis dissimulative, no, not dissimulative, disseminative, and like uh, falling apart all the time, this is gonna put a lot of stress to the psychic mechanism. Um, okay, so, so there is this, um, so there is this, um, 
this definition of pleasure. But actually what you could think is that there might be a pleasure for pleasure, right? As well as you might think that there is a freedom of freedom, a freedom to choose for or against freedom, the self-application of freedom on itself. You might think that there's a, that there's a form of pleasure which chooses pleasure, which pl chooses the new pleasure, right? Which chooses the change. Okay. Um, and in so far as pleasure is defined as this uh, kind of stability, the pleasure that chooses pleasure is going to generate um, a certain kind of instability. That's my hypothesis. Okay, in the in the um, in the setup of the system, you have a a loophole, so to speak, in the self-application of the defining operator on itself. When pleasure chooses new pleasure, works on itself. It actually produces the opposite. But not as like another pleasure, but as, an, as a whole in pleasure, as a completely different, different order. Um, okay. And if that makes some kind of sense, maybe it doesn't, but maybe it does. If that makes some, makes some kind of sense, you could see how you have like a very similar problem, like the Evelyn Kant, in this self-application of the thing. Okay. Very quickly, one word on the third term. No, we go, we jump to the conclusion in one minute. Okay. I started this off by, um, by saying that um, there's this like general feeling in many people that if we just let things float, they're probably gonna turn out better, right? So I have presented two cases, I wanted to present three cases, but I, I have presented two cases where um, there is a certain kind of necessary possibility, inevitable possibility, of self-application, which, um, which actually acts against its own interest. Once in the case of morality, Kantian morality. Now, you don't have to be a Kantian uh, in order to find this problematic, right? You could, uh, we could, we could go through other systems. In Kant, it's, it's just most articulated, most strong. <clears throat> and in, in the question of the, of the death drive. Now, if this is, has some kind of, um, of merit, right, you might think that there's a real problem with, um, with the letting flourish of desire or letting everybody decide on their best... Uh, best interest, even if it's in, in such a rigid way as, as Kant wants it to have, right? Because there's always this possibility of your, of the defining moment of your system, like freedom or like pleasure, um, to act against itself on a substantial, uh, in a substantial uh, manner. Now, what does this, um, what does this amount to? Does this mean that uh, we should uh, end up uh, making people like super neurotic and sticking to like any kind of like weird rules? Is just make 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 it work? I don't know. Maybe. Um, but what I want to um, what I want to float as an idea is that there is of course the um, 
the possibility to uh, point this out also um, performatively in any kind of, uh, in, many, in many ways, right? I think, for example, that um, the classical um, cynics, the classical Greek cynics, were very good at like, pointing out the instability of a system to itself performatively and make people react in, a, in, a, um, in an almost artistic way. Um, yeah, so I'm not going to solve this question. I'm going to leave you with the, um, with the instability. And uh, hold that probably it's a, there's, a, there's a very profound, substantial, um, unsolved, I, I feel, ethical, or not ethical, as I said in, in the beginning, right? metaphysical in, a, in, a, in another sense. This is not... Uh, this is not, uh, there's a meta level, or this is not, um, there's only the history of being, or something like, uh, like that, on which this problem, it's, it's another level. But I want to call it metaphysical anyway. There's a metaphysical problem, I think, with this kind of assumption and uh, orientation. I was hoping for a, for a punchline to come to me to end this, but I don't have one. Sorry. <laughs> just heard philosopher Luce Delier with her paper Necropolitics, The Death Drive, and the Necessity of Evil, first presented at the Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult Conference at Candid Arts Trust in London, 2016. For more, visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. And now, it can be chaotic and disturbing. Neither fixed us in breaking, 
increase or formation, favorable, weights, media, political period of time, continued, literature with his revolutionary spirit in a womb, encouraging the expression of our true anthropomorphic selves shown movement, similar a glimpse into her, the inner, the devils of a man, and can choose, the, then in turn alter, is a, of the creative, of the collective unconscious, and can be worked with that headed and made to the field. That same year he, major issue with the masculine and feminine energies within the soul structure of accurately be and a see the deconstruction of a map sent to the ego nothing matters the divine couple the physical growth of the mirror image on with performance sent disenchanted and were empty true life forms without and heightening the in precarious. I recall how my teacher of his image we attempt to produce. Thank tricksters and exclamations. The pleasure principle experiences greatly influencing the that is built up. Little smoked fish utterances. The back end and its study. Chorus to his prophet pleasure principle. My teacher was constitute the sub-quantity of excitation, that is, if proceeding has in any way found, and to worthy witchcraft, the mirror image 